Welcome to Manage Self, Lead Others podcast. I'm your host, Nina Sunday. And this week, I have a bonus episode for you from Dr. Gary McGrath's podcast, Leading from the Front, where he interviews one of my recent guests, Simon Reynolds, on leadership. It was episode 46 of my podcast, Manage Self, Lead Others, where Simon and I spoke about super productivity based on his book, Win Fast. In addition, Dr. McGrath was also a guest on Manage Self, Lead Others on the topic, Are You a Bad Boss? Now it's over to Dr. Gary McGrath to introduce Simon Reynolds. Happy listening. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. And welcome again to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Today's guest is one of the world's leading business mentors, and this business mentor has built numerous successful businesses and created and built five multi-million dollar businesses in a row. Building a multi-million dollar business puts you in the top 1% by itself, and this guest has done it five times. One such business started with two people and over eight years later employed over 6,000 people in 14 countries. This group comprised 54 companies and was valued on the stock exchange at over half a billion dollars. From 2008 to 2011, he was chair of OMG, which is Australia's largest group of websites running over 31,000 sites. So he knows something about websites, technology and marketing. Prior, he founded several highly successful ad agencies winning Advertising Agency of the Year twice as well as over 50 industry awards, which included TV commercial of the year, magazine ad of the year, newspaper ad of the year, and the Grand Prix at Cannes. I guess you could say we're about to talk to the Don Draper of Australia. Well, that's a reference to Mad Men for those of you that don't know the show. His recent book, Why People Fail, reached number one on the Australian bestseller list in both the business and self-improvement categories. It won the silver medal at the 2012 U.S. Axiom Business Book Awards and was a finalist at the CEO Read Business Book Awards. He's been featured on 60 Minutes, Today, A Current Affair, Bloomberg, and hundreds of print and radio interviews. Currently, he mentors entrepreneurs and CEOs from all over the world, from his home in Los Angeles and Sydney. Uh, I already mentioned this. I'm assuming that's Sydney, Australia, not Sydney, Florida. So please welcome today, Mr. Simon Reynolds. How are you doing, Simon? I'm doing great. And that was an incredible introduction. I hope I, I live up to half of it. <laughs> well, you don't have to list, live up to much when you've got the credentials like you have. I'm, I'm really interested and in, I'm going to guess if you grew five companies to multi-million dollars that you started at a young age. So let's give some background and talk about how you got into this entrepreneurial thing that you've been doing for years and then getting into business mentoring. What's your path? Yeah, sure. So I uh, started out in advertising and I was very fortunate to become a creative director of an ad agency called Gray in Sydney, which is all around the world, but uh, is uh, the Sydney branch of it at 21 years of age. And that all made the news and that was all very exciting until I got sacked a year and a half later. And to this very day, 
I do not know why I got sacked. I'm sure I deserved it in some way, but it was a complete surprise to me. And, and you know, it was done by phone. It was terrible leadership. Done by phone, no, <laughs> no valid reason given, all, all that kind of, you know, classic bad leadership. But there I was at age by then, and I'd just turned 23. I'd hit 23. No one would give me a job as a creative director because they assumed having been, you know, sacked so publicly that I must be terrible. And the only way of getting a job as a creative director was to open my own ad agency. And so I did that with two partners. And we were all, you know, full of optimism like you you are when you open a business. The only problem was we opened the business one week before the 1987 stock market crash. So good timing. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. And I got to tell you, the first thing people cut is their advertising budget when times are tough. And so that's how we started out. And we eventually built that agency and then opened up in New York two or three years later and actually had Donald Trump as a client when he was actually doing building developments. And we had two of his apartment blocks uh, and a, a few other clients there. And, and we, we went on from there. So why advertising? At 21 years old, you get into this large advertising firm. Did you just fall into it? Is it something you wanted to do your whole life? I mean, what, how did you get there? Well, I think there were two drivers of it. The, the first was that I used to watch Bewitched. You remember that, that oh, show yeah. when I was growing up? Elizabeth, uh, what was her name? Montgomery. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, We're and showing I, our age, Simon. Exactly. I know, frightening. Everybody else is going, what the hell is this they're talking about? And it was this show for all the younger people. It was this show that was big in the 70s where Darren was an advertising executive. That's right. And it looks so cool. You know, he's showing ads and coming up with ideas and his wife was a witch and, and it was wonderful. And I, I'd watch this each afternoon and I, that was my introduction to advertising. I thought that'd be great. And then fast forward when I was about, 16 or 17, I hated school. I wanted to leave school. In fact, I tried to leave. My mom wouldn't let me. And when it came to careers, my main want was not to go to university Mm. because that meant more school. So I looked at careers where you could make money without going to university. And I came up with stockbroking, real estate, and advertising. And (laughs) And so I chose advertising and started from there. So it's funny how we choose careers sometimes to avoid something else, right? It's not necessarily moving towards something as it is moving away from things that we might not want, but that's human nature, right? I'm going to back up for a second because uh, as you said, you got sacked. For those of you that don't understand Australia, that means he got fired. And, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. That's that's all right. I think uh, people understand the vernacular well enough. I've been sacked a few times. <laughs> I say that I chose to leave voluntarily as they were firing me. But anyway, yeah. let's go back to that for a second, because in reflection, when you look back on that, that 18 months, I'm sure you learned a lot. What did you finally figure out was the cause? And we all know there's a reason that they let you go. What do you think that reason was, right, wrong, or indifferent, whether you were able to figure it out for real or not? What what do you think the reason was? Well, yeah, it's a great question. And I I tried to uh, contact the guy only in the last couple of years, and he he died. And and, and Um, the purpose was not to blame him at all, because obviously I've got over it. It was to thank him for the opportunity, but also to ask. Sure. And, and, you know, why, why did it happen? I'm, I'm cool with it happening, but, but why, did, why did it happen? And um, unfortunately, he died prior to me being able to get through to him. So, uh, look, I think it was two reasons. The first is 
at that age, you don't really know what you're doing when it comes to to leadership, you know. And and so I'm 21. I came from a, an extremely good ad agency, so the standard of the work was going to be fine. Uh, it was a much higher standard than they were doing in that agency, but I was not used to leading a team. I was not used to the politics of of an organization and you know all kinds of weird things were happening as other people were were trying to look good and say save themselves because when you run a creative department of an agency and you're attempting to make it a great creative department you come across all kinds of people inside the company whose mission is not to take the hard road of creating brilliant advertising it is to take the easy road to say yes to everything the client says and and just to run things as it was before. So there was definitely friction that was created as I moved towards my mission, which was the opposite of, of what they wanted to do. Did I handle that elegantly? Did I handle it, um, uh, you know, as you say, with, with, with the compassion I should have? I don't think I did. But it's so long ago, you know, I'm 55. It's so long ago, I'm not so sure. Now, there's another reason why I could have got sacked. And that is that I was creative director of, let's say, I don't know, 60% of the agency. And then there was this traditional part of the agency that was just left alone to do its stuff. Almost all of it went just by chance. The clients departed in that side of the agency in a matter of months. And it is possible I was sacked for the CEO to save his job. So he could say to New York, it's okay, I got rid of the problem. I don't know. Who knows? I I can tell you this, though. I'm sure I didn't do a, you know, absolutely stellar job when it came to leadership. Yeah. So I and I'll I'll tell you one of my premises when I we do leadership development, I tell people, you know, how much experience do you have? Whatever that level of experience is. First of all, experience alone is a horrible teacher. And and we learn this as parents. You know, say, well, I was a kid once. Why can't I bring my kids up right well, because you only have like one or two experiences with parents, our own parents that sometimes aren't exactly the right thing for us when we're growing up, might not be the right thing for our kids growing up. I can guarantee you that my father, who was a tough military officer, if he had raised one of my sons, he would have crushed him. Hmm. He just would have crushed his spirit. And this this young man who's 37 now has a high level of emotional intelligence, loves people, loves to be an entrepreneur, uh, tried a whole bunch of different things. At 26 years old, was sleeping in the basement of a friend's house because he didn't really have a job. He was teaching tennis a little bit part-time and ended up going through a process over the next 10 years of learning himself. He ended up getting married, having a couple of kids, really kind of understanding himself. And last year sold a business for $1.7 million because he stayed true to himself. He, He wasn't crushed. And we always said to him, you have great talents, use those talents, do the best you can, and let's figure this out. So when he was sleeping on the couch, I didn't care. He had a place to sleep. He had food in his, in his belly, so he's okay, yeah. right? That's not a bad place to be for some kids that are, that are lost at the moment. But here's the thing. It takes five to 10 years to become mediocre as a leader. Five to 10 years. It's complex, I mean, think about this, this 60% of the ad agency that you supported. How many direct reports did you have? Well, uh, in the creative department, that, oh, when that creative you were 21 department. years old. Um, yeah, we probably had, uh, including production, probably 15. 15. So how many of those people were hoping to get your job before you were hired? 
That's a great question. At least three, I'd say. Uh-huh, yeah. So do you think that in that situation with this young 21-year-old whippersnapper, as we say in the U.S., that they want to sit there and see this guy succeed who walked in and basically they're sitting there thinking they took my job? Yeah. And that's the politics and the psychology of it. And my guess is you walked in so excited about this opportunity that that did not even cross your mind. hundred percent. I was completely unaware of that. Oblivious yeah. to those kind of nuances of, of people. And, and yeah, I, I just wanted to do the work and I thought the work was the job. There you go. And that's the learning. And if there's anything that I learned in my career, and I talk about this all the time, our definition of leadership is the ability to build relationships so we can achieve our goals together with compassionate accountability. It starts by building relationships. Goals, execution, and output is secondary to the relationships. And you really didn't even know the people that you were coming in to work with and probably did, and didn't know that there were two or three people that underneath all of this were really hoping you would fail. A hundred percent. Yeah. So if you had a relationship with them, that might've been different, but that probably didn't happen until your thirties. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, I really like the way you have phrased leadership or putting relationship first. And I think that's extremely unusual because most people think that what is intelligent is to put results first. And at first glance, you go, well, of course, we want results. But the, the only road to that is, is quality relationships. And, and that's something that took me many, many years to, to understand. And a lot of pain, probably. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of ineffectiveness right. as well. A lot of partial results. I'm curious, we mentioned this earlier when we were before the podcast started about this company that you built from two to 6,000 and the process. I'm going to guess that your leadership skills were a little bit better when you did that than they were when you were 21. And how did you get there and how did you morph yourself, your own leadership capabilities through that process? Talk to me a little bit about the timeline and what it took. 54 countries, you had all these you know, different disparate uh, organizations and, and cultures and language and a- ethnicity, which is freaking awesome. And want to hear how did, what was that experience like? And how did your leadership evolve? Yeah, it, it was a very interesting period, very fast moving period. And look, the first thing I'll say is that I was out of my depth for a huge amount of time and had to quickly adjust constantly. And that that was brilliant for me because it, it drove progress a lot faster than if I just had one organization. So first of all, I would say just throwing yourself into scenarios where you you either you think there's a good chance you'll muck it up or you're barely you barely have the criteria and skills to make it work. But then you adapt. That's the first part of it. And then the second part is intention to get better. You know, the a lot of people will, will just continue with the same level of skill that they've got as their organization changes and, and grows bigger. And um, unless, I believe, unless you have the, the core intention to, to be a learner, to, to increase your skill base, then, you know, your, your chances of, of doing it just coincidentally are very, very small. So I think those things combine the w- willingness to, to dive in, the willingness to be a student continually, which I still still have today, is very, very important. Yeah, lifelong learning, man. It's a, and it, you reminded me of Marshall Goldsmith's book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Mm. 
and the coaching that that you do as a mentor now with business leaders, it's uh, I'm sure in some way, shape or form, you're reminding them of that adaptation and what got you here, what has allowed you to be successful to this point will not be enough for you to be successful over the next two, three or four or five years that you have to constantly be developing, getting better. And that's what you're saying. Absolutely. And, and I think that um, the strange thing is that if everything will be all right, if you just keep wanting to get better, mm-hmm. if you work in a methodical way to get better, then in the end, as long as you've got a modicum of uh, intelligence, you're going to solve it. It's, it's when people believe that they're good enough that they, that they get into trouble, I think. So let's dig into that for just a second, because what you just said is, is a real key to really effective leadership. Because when we look at the opposite, I want people to hear what's the opposite in the relationship when you have a boss that's unwilling to be flexible and adjust, unwilling to grow, unwilling to learn. And when people ask me what I do, Simon, I always say, well, ask me, ask me what I do. And I say, okay, what do you do? I say, well, you ever had a bad boss? And most people have had a bad boss. I tell them I get rid of them. That's my mission in life is to get rid of bad bosses. I say it's to make good bosses into great leaders with compassion and accountability, but my underlying goal is to get rid of bad bosses. Try to make them good and great, but if you can't, let's get them out and put them in an individual contributor's position. And a lot of them are exactly what you're saying. What's the impact on the followers when the boss is unwilling to grow, learn, and get better? At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. We're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Mm. Well, I mean, it's it's uh, there's several levels I think to to impact. So the the impact at the end of the financial year is the the company hasn't performed as well as it could have. The impact emotionally is that people are uh, often the bodies are there, but the minds and souls aren't there. And what I found is, you know, that a, a company is a complex organism, and the cells inside the company will go off and stay healthy themselves, not worrying about the uh, the parent host, the the total organism. So what you find is you have all these fiefdoms that get created, uh, either a negative fiefdom where they're bitching about you behind your back, or a positive fiefdom where they know that the way to get their job done well is to do things without you knowing. Or without involving you, and the cells are going wild inside the organism. That's what happens. Mm. And uh, when all the arrows are pointing the same way, then you know we we get a poor result. Yeah, yeah. In in a lot of ways, the cliches that I've often used is when people get to that point, they go into business for themselves, which is what you're saying, right? Yeah. They because they they have to protect themselves. We have we have a protectionist mentality as human beings. So we're going to protect, protect our income, protect our departments. And like what you were saying, when you have bad results, what popped into my head, as soon as you said that, when the CEO looks at the bad results, the first thing that that kind of a CEO does is start to figure out who to blame, who's to blame for this. Yeah. And like you started off, you said, one of the things that you thought that the, the challenges that the ad agency had when you were 21, 22 years old is the CEO fired you to save his own job. And that's a absolutely a, a political 
possibility. Whether yeah. it's true or not, is we don't know, but it's absolutely a political possibility. There's also, I'm going to guess, a lot that was going on behind the scenes politically that you didn't know about being inexperienced politically and relationally, that the CEO was talking to people in that department, seeing how things were going. You might have been getting decent results here or there or everywhere, but a lot of discontent that you may not have even known about. Oh, absolutely. And I didn't have the uh, leadership skills at, at 21 and 22 to to even inquire uh, with any, <laughs> any depth as to yes. as, as to what they were they were feeling. I was taking I was taking their face value conversation with me as as being truth. Yeah. And fast forward to now, where you know I've got a little more leadership ability just because of and, the, and, you know. And gray hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so, right. Um, and, and it can't be cut because we're in the COVID world. <laughs> That's um, right. Yeah. So, you know, I look at it now and I think at the heart of those problems in an organization is not valuing frank conversation from the mm. top. So if you can create a culture where it's safe to speak your mind, then you know, all kinds of, you know, not, not with maliciousness, but with clarity, then so much, not all, but so much of politics is, is eradicated. And so much of um, slowness of people working together is, is sped up. And, you know, just before this, and I want to throw it over to you, Gary, you told an amazing story about the space shuttle, which was a perfect example of this. Yeah, yeah. So take us through that. Okay. Well, one of the purposes of our podcast is to help people learn leadership skills because it's it's a responsibility, not a position, which means they have to have the skills to be able to have a voice to speak up when they know things need to be spoken. And like you said, to have the, the courage to speak up, to have those tough conversations. As the story goes with the challengers, there was a, a very brilliant engineer that was on the uh, challenger uh, NASA staff People knew that the O-rings on the uh, Challenger booster rockets had a problem in freezing weather, and it could cause them to uh, bypass the, uh, the flexibility of the O-ring and, and cause catastrophic failure, which is exactly what happened. And this engineer knew it, and he made it quietly aware to his boss, who didn't really present it in the big meeting when they were trying to decide for the takeoff whether to do it or not with the weather conditions. And they decided to go ahead, and this engineer did not speak up in that meeting. He didn't feel that he had the skill. He didn't feel he had the, the, the sense of importance and urgency or the position to speak up and uh, didn't have the, the competency to speak up in a way that would demonstrate a level of passion and concern for the issue at hand. And what we're trying to do with Leading from the Front and our leadership development programs is give people a voice. And also to teach leaders to hear that voice. Sometimes it's a whisper. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got to work both ways. It's not just the person speaking, but sometimes a person with a certain level of emotion and passion might say something that doesn't seem to be clear. And as a leader, we need to slow down. Like you said, just slow down and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. What are you trying to say here? Mm-hmm. Let me really understand what your meaning is, because the words that you're saying are not understood. But there's an intentional meaning that I need to get to because I think it's important to you mm. and it might be important to us. Mm. Mm. So we can all, like, like you said, just keep learning and learning and learning. So, And I will say this, that there's two parts, two times when doing that occurs. The second 
is the moment you said when you're in communication and say, well, tell me more about that. And you you have the patience to unlock that whisper and, and hear what's behind it. But then way before that, the only way that that you're going to create an environment where that's going to occur is that you do the work supporting them, appreciating them, mm. hearing them prior to the moment where they have an opportunity to express themselves. Absolutely. And when, once you do that, then they speak up. Yeah, because if they've been shut down over and over and over again, they're not going to speak up, right? Yeah. So you're right. It's You've got to open that door. And and I like uh, Patrick Lencioni's uh, model in the book Advantage, where he talks about trust is based on our ability to be able to get things done and vulnerability. Mm. It's a level of vulnerability. And we do this with our leaders where we share certain things to help leaders and leadership teams to be more vulnerable and open so that the most important part of it, and we learned this in the military, is to be able to express something I can't do is a lot of power in being able to openly say, you know what, you know, Simon, I, I'm, I'm not good at this. You're asking me to do this and I'm not good at this. You ask me to do this, there's a high probability we're going to fail. I really think uh, Nancy over there, she'd be great with this. Mm. Let's ask her to do it. She's stronger at this on this team. Mm. And maybe I can take some of her stuff off because I'm good at some of the things she's not good at. And now we're open and vulnerable enough and modest and and humble enough to know, like you said, be a lifelong learner. These are the things I learned that I'm really good at. These Mm. are the things I really suck at. Don't give those to me. Mm. But it's having the vulnerability and the open conversation the courageous conversation to be able to express that and admit I'm not good at that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people have a real challenge with being able to admit that they think they're supposed to be good at everything. Oh yeah. And we're living a complete facade, you know, uh, totally. a, a, at work where we're pretending we've got this mask and, and everybody else is wearing their mask and, we're, and no one's acknowledging that we've got masks on and we're behaving as if there are no masks. And so that leads to inauthentic conversation on both sides. And hiding, hiding yeah. witness, as you say. Yeah. So, yeah, we actually take people through exercises on leadership teams to break that down. There's exercises mm-hmm. that we do. So let me mm-hmm. let me ask you about your book, because I think this is a great segue into this. Why people fail your new book that, well, I don't know how new it is. It's been out for a couple of years, but it's an interesting book. I find the, the title and the, the study of why people fail fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I think it's something as a leader that it's the culmination I'm sure of a lot of things that you've learned as a leader Mm. and then how you've used that to overcome failure at times. Talk a little bit about your book. What's the premise of it? What's the theme and, and how, how could that help me? Yeah. Well, well, look, it's a, it's a very interesting area. And uh, you know, I wrote that book a few years ago. My, my brand new book is called win fast and that's that's on how to achieve quickly, but on why people fail, you know, I, there were so many books on success I thought, well, why don't we? Why aren't there any books nice. on failure? Because for the the typical person, failure is their most of the experience. Let us say, I would like to earn this amount, or I would like to build a company, or I would like to reach this level in in a corporation. It takes years and years and years to achieve that. So most of the time, we're failing to achieve that. Most of the time, for the ambitious person, most of the, most of their experience is either minor or major failures on the way to the top. And so I thought, well, we need to explore that. But people don't want to talk about failure. They don't want to uh, discuss it. And that's crazy, you know, because we, we need to become intimate with failure so that we can minimize it. And the book is is about 
a whole lot of ways that cause uh, ways of behaving that cause cause failure. Yeah, and uh, I remember coming across a study years ago where they asked people to describe. And they separated between pessimists and optimists. That's just the way they, they categorize these two groups, describe horrible failures or things that happen in their lives. And they categorize the pessimists that would describe these stories that were like, you know, really, really challenging stories from health issues to loss of jobs to everything. And, and the optimists would tell the same stories, but they would always add at the end what they learned from it. Mm. The mm. pessimists would, the way they describe, you know, they just categorize in these two groups, but they, we could talk about this being a fixed and a growth mindset in the mindset area by Carol Dweck and say, fixed mindset, this is what happened. It sucked. But the growth mindset, this is what happened. And you know what I learned? <laughs> I learned that I'm going to build relationships or I'm going to be more empathetic or I'm going to learn this skill or I'm going to be, you know, watch the finances better. What, what did you learn from it? And failure isn't the problem. It's how you respond to the failure that either gives you an opportunity to learn, become better, stronger, or to just let that failure suck the life out of you because you personalize that. And we've, like you said, we've all had failures. Oh, absolutely. And, and yes, it's, it's the alchemical response to adverse circumstances that make someone a success, not how lucky they are. So, you know, look at guys like Mike Bloomberg, what an incredible achiever he was. But most of his achievement came after he was fired from Salomon Brothers and then opened his own company and from then became a billionaire and from then became one of the best mayors of New York. Just like you, Simon, you got fired and you started your own ad firm and you built up five companies and there you go. You and Mike Bloomberg. Well, look, I think we've, we've just found the secret. We just got to get fired more often. <laughs> there you go. So listen, let's, you, you mentioned your second book, your most recent book, Win Fast. Talk a little bit about that. What, and how does that relate to all the stuff that we've been talking about in leadership? Okay, so WinFast is really, as the name, name kind of hints at, it's how do we make change happen quickly? Now, mm. you and I know that there's all kinds of change that takes time to, to do, but we can be more productive very fast. We can increase our rate of achievement very fast. We can in increase our ability to relate to people very fast. What are the strategies that are really quick? to improve our life, to improve our business really, really quickly. And so WinFast is 80 very short chapters because you've got to be fast to read them on how to, <laughs> okay. how to change your life and your business quickly. Okay. So give me, you know, from a leadership standpoint, what would one of these 80 ideas be or one or two of these 80 ideas? Let's wrap up with a, a couple of uh, ideas to wet the whistle for somebody to go out and look for your book on WinFast. Okay. So in leadership, in the book, I talk about the fastest way to improve your leadership, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, I'm speaking to a, a true expert here, but it's to massively increase the appreciation you show for staff. Mm. And, and, you know, Gallup, uh, and you may well be aware of uh, this study, they, they did a study of 4 million people, one of the biggest leadership studies ever done, and they found out that the vast majority of Americans, the number one reason they left a job was lack of appreciation. Above money was lack of appreciation. And I can't remember the exact number. It's somewhere in the, in the 60, somewhere 63%, 65% or so of Americans have not been told that they have done a good job 
for at least a year. Mm. So think about this. The one thing they crave more than anything else is to be appreciated, and the one thing they do not get is any appreciation. Now, if that doesn't create disastrous results, uh, I don't know what will. So you can change this very, very quickly, and you can just follow the, the Gallup formula, which is in the workplace, say three positive, appreciative things for every one negative thing you do as a leader. And in the home life, and you know, it's just an enormous study, in the home life, you need to say four positive things for every one negative thing you say. And uh, there was a brilliant research study by Dr. John Gottman. In fact, it's probably in the top handful of most amazing research studies I've ever, ever read. And Gottman is a globally renowned relationship expert. And he got, I think it was either 700 or 800 newlyweds. And he interviewed them together, two by two by two for 15 minutes each and recorded the interview. And then he came back 10 years later and se- uh, to look whether they're still married. And he, he had over 90% accuracy in predicting who'd be together and who wouldn't, spending 15 minutes with them. Wow. And what was he looking for? The amount of appreciation and uh, they were showing to the other people when he asked particular questions about, about their life. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's the first thing I do, um, and that's a, one of the things in WinFast that I suggest people do to transform not just their company but their entire personal lives as well. Well, I, I love that. In fact, uh, it ties in with a lot of things. Our leadership program in Step 5, Building Relationships, we have the four A's of uh, first acknowledgement, just saying, hey, Simon, how you doing, and just saying the person's name, all right? And I, I tell this story all the time. I go to a bar, I sit and have a beer. If I want to get the bartender's attention and I'm going, hey, can I, can I, you know, and it's noisy, nothing. But if I know his name or her name, I say, hey, Simon, can I get another beer? Their head will turn around just like that. Mm. So the first thing is just acknowledging the hu- they're a human being. They have a name. Mm. The next thing is appreciation. It's saying thank you. Two words, thank you. And of course, we want to say thank you for exactly what they did, but I used to create these little three by five cards and hand them out to people that work with me and try to give out three to five of them a week. And I'd walk around and, and, and I'd write down on the back of it, their, their name and why I thought they did a good job with something. And I told them this is part of our, it's appreciation, but it's part of our uh, performance review program because at the end of the year, as the manager, I'm supposed to tell you all the bad things you do. You bring these into the meeting and you can say, well, these are all the good things you told me. Remind me, and I'll put them into your performance review. Yeah. So you, you show appreciation. It's beautiful. So the four A's is attention, appreciation, affection. And, of course, with COVID today, the affection is uh, a, an air high five. But humans need human contact. That's why we shake hands when we f- finish a deal. It's why with our, our family members, we give hugs. We need hugs. You know, So find somebody safe to give hugs to. And in, at work... It's high fives and it's handshakes and, you know, whatever is appropriate. But we need that contact. It's affection. And finally, it's acceptance. It's being able to know and understand you as a human being and accept you is what creates trust and us wanting to work together. So we have the four A's and appreciation is one of them. And um, I love that one. So people need to get your book, Win Fast, and learn the other 79 because if they're that good, 
they need to know what the other 79 are. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. And I like your affection one. You do not hear that much in, in the corporate world. And I think it's really true. And a lot of people would be listening and, and say, affection, you know, that's all kind of soft stuff. But some of the greatest leaders in, in business have been excellent at affection. And, and what comes to, uh, who comes to mind is Alan Mulally, who did the extraordinary turnaround of Ford during the, uh, the crash of 2008. And, you know, most people had given Ford up for dead. They were losing, I think it was, uh, I mean, certain billions and billions of dollars a year. And he came in, had never run a car company, but he was famous in Ford for his affection. And he used to literally say to people, hey, I'm a hugger. And he'd, he'd hug them. And yeah. they'd never seen this at Ford, that yeah. a leader w- would do this. And it began to, yes, it's only a hug, but it began to unlock openness, which was yeah. obviously so crucial to Ford's turnaround. Well, Simon, I think that uh, that's where we need to end this is with a virtual hug. And uh, someday, someday, maybe we can uh, actually have a, a real hug. I get out to Los Angeles and the West Coast on occasion. I have a son who lives in San Diego, so uh, I do get out there. That'd be awesome. And I uh, would love to have a, uh, a real hug from, uh, from Simon Reynolds, today's guest, the mentor of business leaders, is I think what we're going to call him now, having run and built five companies. Simon, it's been a real pleasure. I, an absolute delight, Gary. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And I am Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. And this has been Leading from the Front. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this bonus episode with Dr. Gary McGrath speaking with Simon Reynolds from his podcast, Leading from the Front. Until next time, bye for now. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.